the everlasting gospel. But right now we're going to bow our heads and ask for the Lord's guidance. I found something. I shouldn't say I found something. It was always there. But I now understand more clearly there is something more powerful than forgiveness. Let's bow. Gracious, loving Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be able to know that as we wait upon you, Lord, you'll speak to each of our hearts. You'll find us where we are, and you'll lead us to where you will have each one of us to be. This morning, Lord, we beseech that you send in this place of worship the power that each one of us needs to connect our hearts to a plain, thus saith the Lord. And as we understand, give us wisdom to apply it to our lives, and may we leave transformed because of what you have put into the everlasting gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know that my elder read that scripture, but I want to read it one more time because it is, in fact, the foundation, the circumference, the content of the message this morning is going to be built around this powerful verse. Love the fact that in the sight of God, we are all little children. Amen, children? We are all little children. All the children of the world, in the sight of God, we are all little children. So stop bragging about how old you are. You're just a child in the sight of God. The Apostle John says to us today, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an, what is that? Advocate, lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is, there's that word that always bewildered us, the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for, together, the whole world. One of our favorite restaurants is Thai D down in Marion. We discovered Thai D when our former favorite restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, closed, which was in that similar area, close to where the Harley Davidson motorcycle uh, store is. Right down that block, it was Asian Bistro. And when they went out of business, we still had that we need to replace Asian Bistro with something Asian. And we just saw Thai D, it never really sunk in, it never really hit us or caught our attention. So we said, let's go ahead and try it. And I'll tell you now, Asian Bistro, if we're down in Marion, and my wife says, what should we eat? I said, let's go to Asian Bistro. <laughs> there are times, I mean, not Asian, uh, Thai D, thank you, honey. Let's go to Thai D. And we have forged relationships with those who work there. We, the owner has so many times, Yada is her name, she's come and talk with us. We tell about our travels, and she asks, us, where are you going next? So it's more than just good food, but it's good fellowship. But you may have heard about the story. It appeared in the Marion Daily Republican newspaper, June 2018. 
And the article began with the phrase, sometimes it's all about being in the right place at the right time. The owner of the restaurant, the co-owner, it was Yada and Thanet Nitsiri of Marion, found that to be true, playing a pivotal role in the rescue of 12 young soccer players and their coach trapped in a remote cave in Thailand. Uh, when he was interviewed, this is what he said. He said, I was already in Bangkok working on a groundwater project for the Thai government, said Natisri, who, with his wife Yada, owns Thai D restaurant in Marion. This was all over the world. This was, this was top news in every country. It was everywhere. The whole world was focused on this rescue effort. And, and Natisri, not, not just so by God's appointment, happened to be where he needed to be. It says, the military re requested my assistance. They thought I might be able to help. Uh, if you haven't been to the restaurant before, here's Natisri and his wife, uh, Yara, uh, a face that we're very familiar with. Whenever she's there, we know things are going to be fine, and they have a well-oiled machine that learned how to make it through the difficult atmosphere of the COVID-19. Uh, when you go on further, the story reveals Natisri had about 400 rescue workers as, at his disposal, including 270 soldiers from the small Thai army unit at Chiang Rai, 150 members of the Thailand Rescue Volunteer Organizations, and about 20 to 40 local villagers. He also had a lot of uh, professional divers that came from the United Kingdom. Professional divers were dispatched from different parts of the world. They heard about this crisis, and they went on their own. They weren't paid to go. They said, this is our specialty. What they were up against, I, I hope you can see this, is these 12 young soccer players, along with their coach, decided to go on a hike, an expedition under a mountain, inside a mountain in Thailand. You might see the little green arrow there on, the, on your right and the red arrow on the left. The green arrow is the entrance of this, of this uh, cave that was four kilometers long, and the red arrow shows what happened when they, that's where they got stuck. Just to give you perspective, just to give you perspective of this cave, because you have to look at it really closely to see the size of the person in scale to the, to the size of this cave. To get from where the entrance of the cave is to where they were, are you ready? It was an 11-hour round trip. That's how difficult it was to get to them. They were entering monsoon season, and what happened as they went into the cave, a surprise thunderstorm came up and began to flood parts of the cave. And these young boys, their ages between 11 and 16, were too young and too inexperienced to even navigate trying to get out. They had no tools to get out. They just had their backpacks, and they just had whatever they needed, their flashlights and whatever clothing they had on. They were too inexperienced to go through the difficulty. If you can see the blue spots there, that's where the water level rose. And wherever you see blue, the water level rose. And it may look small on the picture, but it was far greater in distance than any of those little boys or even the coach himself was able to navigate. 
You see a picture here of those. They were trying to find ways to get to that cave. So they were going through different parts of the jungle saying, maybe we could dig down from here since we can't get through the cave at the very entrance. But they kept coming back, as you can see all the rescue workers there in orange, they kept coming back to the fact that there's only one way we're going to get them. We've got to go in that way. We've got to go in one way. Look at the timeline. Look at the timeline. CNN began to put together a timeline, the rescue timeline, which was also published in June of 2018. On Saturday, June 23rd, 12 members of the Wild Boar soccer team and their coach become trapped in a Thai cave by monsoon rains. That's when they went into the cave on June 23rd. Actually, that's the day that they got trapped in the cave. Continuing the timeline, Monday, July 3rd, British divers, uh, July 2nd, British divers find the boys aged 11 to 16 and their coach on a rocky ledge four kilometers inside the cave. Reminds me of when, you know, these distances, four kilometers is not that far on the ground. But I remember when I was in the Philippines a, a few years ago with the Heritage Singers, we were in a place called uh, Mindanao during the monsoon rains. It took us three and a half hours to go just nine miles because the ground had turned to paste. We had to go down mountains. We had to go down a mountain one vehicle at a time. There were more than 70,000 people at the concert. Just imagine trying to go down a mountain one vehicle at a time and praise God, no one got injured. But when we were going down that pasted mountain, the mud had turned to glue and paste our vehicle was sliding left and right, but those guys, I believe it was not just the skill of the driver, but it was the guidance of the holy angels. And in situations like this, there is a human factor, but there is also a divine factor. These young boys, 11 to 16, during that time, something happened. During that time, something happened. This is where the story transitions. Because the young Thai Navy SEAL named Saman Gunan. Here is his picture. He was on vacation. He heard about this tragedy. He cut his bike riding tour short to aid in the rescue. And this young man was so good at cave diving, he successfully delivered oxygen tanks to those trapped in the cave. And as I once again said, the journey was an 11-hour round trip. But he took container after container, uh, uh, canister after canister, and some people suggested leave them in the cave until the monsoon season was done. That would have been four months. But they said, wait a minute, they won't survive. What they came to find out is when they began the expedition, the oxygen level had dropped to 21%. And there were 13 people breathing in that 21% exponentially. And they pointed out that when it gets between 21 and 16%, the heart rate begins to increase because it's trying to pull in more air. When it gets between 16 and 11%, the brain starts trying to navigate to make the heart do more work. When it gets between 11 down to um, 8%, the body begins to shut down. And when it, gets, when it gets down to 6%, cardiac arrest. And they said they were racing against time. So this, this great diver, this Navy SEAL diver, this Thai diver, he kept going back and forth, single-handedly delivering everything he possibly could. 
to those in the cave and giving them enough oxygen so that the rest of the workers can continue the rescue effort. But sadly enough, the timeline continued. Friday, July 6th. Saman Gunan, a former Thai Navy SEAL, dies from lack of air while delivering oxygen tanks inside the cave. They said they don't know how it happened. They said he may have become confident or may have overcalculated or undercalculated, but on his way out, he ran out of oxygen after giving all the oxygen he could to sustain the other 13. It's a moving story. I had to pause a number of times to, um, to kind of take it in because when you begin to dive into the video and you look at all the footage from it, it's just all encompassing. It brings you to the human level to understand that this man didn't have to be there. He was on vacation. He heard about it. He put himself aside and said, wait a minute. This is what I've been trained for. This is my life's work. Put the vacation aside. I'm going to go and involve myself in the rescue. And he lost his life after he had successfully delivered life-saving oxygen to those 13 individuals. What happened after he died? Something amazing happened after he died. The timeline continues. July 8th, look what happened. The first group of four boys are rescued and moved to Chenang Rai Prachan Yukro Hospital. I will not say that again. <laughs> I phonetically separated so I could even enunciate it. They were taken to the hospital. They were, they were rescued after he died. And the workers, when you read the story, British workers, some American workers, most, most of the workers were from Thailand. They were considered professionals. And as uh, Nitsiri said, the gentleman who co-owns uh, the Thai D restaurant, he said, what we consider professionals are those who were born and raised in this community that had been in that cave many, many years. He said, we had no official training, but we knew that cave like the back of our hand. We were considered by the world standard professionals. And they continued to work. But now, the timeline ends here. On July 10th, wow, it went really fast. Let me go back here. On July 10th, Tuesday, July 10th, all remaining boys and their coach are freed and taken to the hospital. Praise the Lord. But the amazing thing about the story is what followed afterwards. Listen to this. They did an expose on the life of this young man who died. And here's what CNN wrote. Kunan, 38, was a former Thai Navy SEAL and experienced diver who volunteered to help with the rescue effort. He was delivering much needed oxygen to the boys and their coach when he ran out of his own air on the way out and died. On the way out, he lost his life. He committed himself to a rescue mission and he succeeded. But on the way out, he died. He died after doing what he committed himself to do. I tried to, I tried to figure that out. I tried to put that in perspective. I tried to say, what would make somebody who doesn't know anything about anybody in that cave, what would make a person want to do that? 
And then all of a sudden, the lights began to come on. The Lord began to tap on my forehead and say, do you understand? Do you understand me a little better? I took a vacation also. I put my glory down. I, put the, I told the angels, wait, pray that I come back. I put my divinity aside and clothed it in humanity. I dove into a cave where you were trapped. I made sure that you had everything you needed to survive. And I tirelessly went back and forth between heaven and hell to make sure that you will survive. And I also gave my life after I made every provision for you to survive. And all of a sudden, the writings of the Apostle Paul jumped out at me, and I thought to myself, they were trapped, they couldn't help themselves, and the Apostle Paul, this verse, I believe if I were writing it, I would have put this verse in the story in the newspaper. The Apostle Paul, Romans 5 and verse 6 says, For when we were together, still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That diver didn't know about the character of any of those children, didn't know about the character of the coach didn't know a thing about their background. He was willing to put his life on the line because they had no strength to save themselves. He saved them when they couldn't save themselves. He provided for them what they couldn't do for themselves. They were too young, too inexperienced, but he knew that he was fit for the job and his life was not a factor. I want to tell you something. This picture of all 13 of them, matter of fact, the coach is so young, you can't even tell whether there's a coach or a child, but they were all so young in their hands, they're holding up a picture of Saman Kunan. They all know that the reason why they are alive is that young man put his life on the line to save theirs. You know, the rescue workers, after they discovered that he wasn't coming back and the time had passed, and they sent someone in and found him. They said, we cannot allow his death to be in vain. We've got to continue this mission. When you know what Jesus has done for us, we cannot allow his death to be in vain. We've got to continue the mission. I can guarantee you that till the day these 13 individuals die, they will never forget the name, Saman Gunan, who gave his life. Even more heart-wrenching was what his father said. His father was quoted. Kunan's father praised his late son and his volunteerism in an interview with Agnes Francis Press, listen to what he said. I only had one child. I was extremely proud of him and his deeds. I thought, how providential that this man only had one child. God only had one son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When Saman Kunan went into that cave, he didn't go to condemn them 
for being so foolish to put their lives on the line, he went in there to save them. He didn't go to scold the coach and say, how could you put these 12 young men in such danger? He went to save even the coach. John 3, 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Simon's motive reminded me of an unforgettable lesson revealed through the heart and life of Jesus. It's unforgettable because you know what? In the human vernacular of life, in the human course of our day-to-day, -day, we, we, we think to ourselves, is that person worthy of my forgiveness? Come on, am I telling the truth? When you get hurt, when you get injured, when things happen to you that just messes you up, you say, why would I even want to forgive? But I want to remind you of an unforgettable lesson that reveals the heart of Jesus. This story did a job on me when I read it. I thought, Father, help me not to allow your death to be in vain. Help me not to feel that I am of such caliber of all that that I could withhold forgiveness from somebody. Being involved with family members, sometimes we get mad at our family members. I get mad at my sister. <laughs> I get mad at my wife's uh, nephew, knucklehead, just trying to get him right. And he got me all up, riled up yesterday, and I lost it. Just, I didn't honor God. I lost it. I was so angry with him. I wanted to pop him. I told him, boy, you better be glad you're not here. <laughs> you ever get that upset? Come on, help me out. You ever get that upset? You just want to pop somebody, hoping that if you pop them one time, they'll kick in. <laughs> That's human nature. Am I telling the truth? And you hang up the phone and say, Lord, please delete what I just said. <laughs> Amen, somebody? It happens. It's human nature. So I felt so bad. I was just so upset with him. I called him back. I said, I apologize for the way I spoke to you. You know I love you. You know, I, only, I can't even excuse what I said to you, but I just want you to know, forgive me. And he said, Uncle, you're forgiven. He was still a knucklehead, but he forgave me. <laughs> and I said, you know, I only want the best for you. Don't disappoint me. And you know, as he continued talking to his aunt later on, he kept saying, Auntie, I can't forget what Uncle John said. Don't disappoint me. So I'm going to do what you guys are asking me to do. He kept saying it over and over. He said, don't disappoint me. He told his mother that. Uncle John said, don't disappoint him. And you know, friends, I don't want to disappoint the Lord. It is a mission of, of insurmountable proportions when you become a Christian, you become a Saman Gunan who says, I don't care what it takes. There's somebody on a ledge that needs my help. You don't ask about what they are and who they are and what they've done and what they haven't done and what they eat or what they don't eat and how they qualify, whether they, whether they agree with you doctrinally, whether they are of your same race, class, creed, financial status. You don't care about any of that because you have been trained by Jesus, to dive into that cave 
and make sure that the person on the other end has everything he or she needs to survive while Jesus is rescuing them. I thought about that, and in this text, continuing in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, look at this. First, that we sometimes overlook, but it's so powerful because it says to us, who are you? Who are you? Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul, being on the receiving end, understood this very well. He says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. I mean, if you're good, people say, I might die for Bob. I'm not sure. He's a good guy, but I don't know about that. That's the real. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. That's human nature. Oh, but thank God for verse 8. Thank God for verse 8. But God. Come on, somebody, say that together. But God. If you put those two words together and just put a quote around them and look in the Bible, you'll find that you would be lost. But God. But God is faithful. But God. It's a theme. It's a motif that just takes the Bible and puts, puts fuel in it and keeps that flame burning eternally. But God demonstrates his love toward us. Notice it didn't say did demonstrate, but he continues, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet or still sinners together, Christ died for us. Hallelujah, somebody. He didn't die for us because we got it all together. He didn't die for us because we just finally laid down our cigarettes. He died for us. He didn't die for us because we are part of the club. He died for us. He died for us because he didn't look at the category that we were in. He looked at the category he can put us in. God is so good, I tell you. There are people that think, well, you know, the significance of the sacrifice of Christ. Yeah, I know Jesus loves me. Oh, let's not commonly make that such a broad, unimpacting statement. The significance of the sacrifice of Jesus has been blurred under the guise that somehow Jesus came to save good people. <laughs> so you know what we try to do? We try to be good. We try to be good. Y'all ought to baptize yourself and you can never do it. We try to be good, good. We try to be gooder than other people are. Because we think that somehow that's going to give God all the reason to save us. Look how good, I'm not going to pick on you, look how good Ramona is. And Ramona is a good person. Amen, somebody, help her out. But I want to tell you, no matter how good she gets, or no matter how good Roger gets, or anybody else, you can't be good enough for Jesus to say, okay, now, now that you got it, I'll die for you. Oh, praise God that in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus took a vacation, went into the cave, swam back and forth, taking everything we needed. My God shall supply all of my need according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. He didn't just come to give us money or fame or visibility or fortune or he didn't come to give us material things. He came to give us something that nobody but him can give it. 
That's why today as I dive into the everlasting gospel, I can guarantee you, and I, I, I may be making a presumptuous statement, but I can guarantee you that you're not going to leave here the same way you came. You see, because we think somehow people have to be good, but I want to tell you, if we think other people have to be good to be saved, I got news for you, you're not even good. Look at the Bible, Romans 3, verse 12. There's no goodness outside of Jesus. Romans 3, 12, speaking about us, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. How many? No, not one. None of us. None of us have done good. But I want to make something very, very clear. Jesus, are you listening? Jesus did not just bring salvation to us. Linda, Jesus became salvation for us. Let me say that again. He didn't just bring salvation to us because we say, you know, you know, the gift of God is eternal life. That's right. But Jesus is the gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, who call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And what's his mission? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10. We'll never forget that passage. My wife taught that to my niece when she was a little girl. We can call her early in the morning and say, Luke 19.10, what is it? And she'll quote it. Jesus came not to bring salvation to us. Jesus came to become salvation for us. He didn't come to give his life for good people. He gave his good life for people. <laughs> he didn't come to bring life to good people. He came to bring his, he came to bring his good life for people. Because if I'm not good, how will I be saved other than by the goodness of God? And by the way, this is not a by the way, it just came into my mind. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So I have to, I have to rethink the way I feel about people that are needing a pop. I gotta be good to the, I gotta, I gotta show them Jesus. Because if they don't see Jesus in me, if they don't see the goodness of God in me, they won't be led to repentance. Some of us think that we got to argue people into righteousness. No, the Lord said it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Jesus did not come to give his life for good people. He came to give his good life for people. But look at what condition he found us in. Romans 5 and verse 10. Let the Bible Speak. Let the word of God speak. Oh, what a text. For if when we were, come on, say it, enemies, we were, what's that next word? Reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by whose life? By our doctrines? By our veganism. 
By our Sabbath keeping. Come on now, by our good, good, by our good goodness. By our good, good, goodness. No, we are having been reconciled. What you got to get in this picture is the word reconciliation is far deeper than forgiveness. Last night, the Lord said to me, move over. Let me help you write your sermon. And I leaned back. And about at the two o'clock point, I felt this warmth come over me. And God said, let me share something with you. You know a lot, but you don't know this. You may have heard it, but let me help you understand it. You see, enemies, this is a powerful point. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled, let's, let's start there. Enemies of the cross, enemies of Jesus, were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Well, get this now. He made provision for reconciliation. But reconciliation is greater than forgiveness. You see, according to the Bible, you can forgive someone without reconciliation. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Here it is. When Jesus bowed his head on the cross before he breathed his last, he said in Luke 23, 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Now, was everybody at that cross that crucified Jesus saved at that moment? No. Forgiveness does not necessarily accomplish reconciliation. It's a step towards reconciliation. You can forgive people. That's why family members have said, oh, I forgave her a long time ago, but they ain't talking. I hope you see my ears. Can't miss it. They ain't talking, but they, but they in their, in their Pharisaical, in their, in their Adventist over here in one family, Adventist over here in the same family, they already forgave each other, but they ain't talking. Oh, we'll talk again when we get to heaven. Ain't neither one of you going. <laughs> Can I be... Can I go Brooklyn on you? Ain't neither one of you going. If you don't get it down here, you ain't gonna, you ain't gonna be gonna say, hey, it's been a while since I've seen you. I missed you, liar. <laughs> you gotta get it right down here. Come on, Terry, say amen. You gotta get it right down here. This Christian life is not thing, it's not something to play with. It ain't good music alone. It's not good praise. It's not a good feeling. It's far deeper than even forgiveness. Jesus forgave them, but I tell you what he said to them before he forgave them. He said, oh, you asked me if I am the son of God, I am, and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We got an appointment, and just so you don't forget it, I told John to write it down. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye will see him, and those also who pierced him. I already forgave them, but we got a date. So forgiveness is not always the, the end result or reconciliation is not always the end result of forgiveness. It's a step. Let's go back to reconciliation. Forgiveness is a choice that one can make without the consent of another. You know, have a bad day at work. Somebody get on your nerves. You go home and you're ticked. And you say, you know, I, for, I, I forgave him. I'm not going to hold it against him. But you go back to work the next day, it's like, there they are. <laughs> they better not be walking toward me because I didn't forget what they did to me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you forgave them though, right? 
you got this gigantic sticker on your chest. I did not forget. You know, because see, those of us who are those of us who are already perfect, we have a sticker that we wear. Forgive, but not forget. That's Christian forgiveness. I forgave you, but I ain't forgetting it. Which puts Jesus in a different category altogether. When you begin to examine God and Jesus, you begin to say, wait a minute. I'm on the right road, but I need more gas because I have a long way to go to become like him. So we have difficulty with scriptures like he takes our sins and throw them into the depths of the sea. Your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Have a hard time with that because we are not there yet. You see, one of the powers of the everlasting gospel, the everlasting gospel, is not just the act of forgiveness of our sins and of cleansing from unrighteousness, but we know that, you know, 1 John 1, 9, we all know that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to do what else? Cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. See, that's forgiveness. That's cleansing. But reconciliation takes it to the next level because reconciliation needs two parties to both agree on forgiveness and the restoration of the relationship. Would you get that? Forgiveness, I forgive you, but stay out of my way. Reconciliation says, I forgive you, but let's walk this road together. That's why when Jesus saw those two disheartened disciples, he got on the road. He didn't have to walk on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and the other disciple, but he saw them. They were disheartened, and he joined himself to them. He was walking with them, and they didn't even know he was there. Is it possible that Jesus could be walking with us, and we don't even know that he is there? You see, forgiveness doesn't require two parties, but reconciliation both have to agree on what is being forgiven of and then both work together for the restoration of the relationship. Because like years ago when my, my wife's little nephew jumped into dog patch at Redwood Camp Meeting, Redwood Camp Meeting up to the Northern California forest, beautiful, beautiful area, the redwoods everywhere. He was running through the campground and with a whole group of little boys, and they love to jump in mud. You know, after it rains, it's mud, and little kids love mud. Well, they saw this gigantic pile of mud, and they jumped to, into it only to find out that it was, that it was a, uh, it was a, it was where they disposed of all the dog stuff. But it looked like mud. And since it was such a big puddle, this puddle came courtesy of every dog in that campground. <laughs> and they jumped in it, and one splashed, and the other splashed. And because the one that splashed didn't know what the other one was, it was not until they splashed, they realized it wasn't rain. And my little, Angie's little nephew kept on running, because, you know, you can run, but sin runs with you. Ooh, it stinks. You can't run fast enough to get rid of the smell. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? It stinks, and you're running like, and it's, I'm with you. I got you covered. 
That's right. That's what that, he was covered in sin. He ran to the trailer. Aunt B, Angie's mom was at the trailer. He said, oh, because you know sin precedes you and proceeds you. It goes ahead of you and it follows behind you. I'm going to tell the truth. Can't run from it. So he gets at the trailer. Outside the trailer, she recognizes her grandson, whom she loves dearly. But she said, you ain't coming in here smelling like that. So she gets his clothing, gives it to him on the outside. You see Jesus, the outer court. He said, you put this on and you can come on in. His righteousness. He cleans up and then she brings him in and they could now have a relationship. Got rid of all that, washed him up, cleaned him up. He looked the same, but he didn't smell the same. The Lord, if all he did was forgive me and cleanse me, I would still be outside of his trailer, disconnected from him, because reconciliation requires something on my part and something on his part. He says, if you get rid of what you have on, I'll give you something else. That's right. Took away the filthy garments. Puts on his righteousness. You see, reconciliation requires an agreement between both parties that, hey, I know I blew it. I know I messed up. But let's work on getting this thing together right. And that young boy, they, uh, Richard, I don't know if he remembers it, but I tell you, I'll never forget it. The everlasting gospel, the everlasting gospel makes available to us a product that is broader than being forgiven. Let's give an example. Go to Luke chapter 15. Go to Luke chapter 15. Let's look at this. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. While you're turning there. Yes. We're going to look at verse 20 to 24, a story that you know very, very well. Look at how it goes beyond, you know this as the prodigal son. As the what? Prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful. Took all his money and his energy and wasted on righteous living. Said, give me mine. So we got his. But the day came when he didn't want to be prodigal anymore. He wanted to go home. So he had to rehearse this whole thing. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say when I go home? Uh, what am I going to say? Okay, okay. My dad didn't come after me because I don't want him to. I want you to get this. My dad did not come after me because I don't want him to. What you have to understand is God will never impose himself where he is not invited. The story of the road to Emmaus, when they got to Emmaus, the Bible says he would have gone farther, but they invited him in. Where we get that song, Abide With Me, Fast falls the even tide that comes from that story. Abide with me. They invited Jesus in. And the Bible says he would have gone farther if they had not invited him in. So in this now, in this decrepit, horrible condition, empty Chinese food containers in his fridge, money's all exhausted. Friends ain't coming over anymore because he can't rent Netflix anymore. His cable just got disconnected. 
Nobody's applauding him because the inheritance is gone. I want you to get this. The inheritance may be gone, but his father is not gone. See, when all that you have that made you feel like you were something is gone, I want you to know in the eyes of God, you are somebody. So now, he finds himself eating pig's food. And as he's eating pig's food, because he cannot buy any more Chinese food, his credit card is maxed, can't pay the bill. While he's in the pig pen, he says, you know what? This ain't even right. I'm going to go to my father. Because it was better then than it is with me now. And he's rehearsing. So verse 20 is where we pick the story up. Look at this powerful story. Because, because reconciliation is far greater than just forgiveness. It says, and he arose and... Let me bring it up. Luke 15, verse 20 to 24. And he arose and came to his father. But look at this. But when he was still, what? A great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Can I pause before I go to verse 21? Some of you need to get out of God's way. God don't wait till we get home to come after us. He sees us coming home, and he shortens the distance. Amen, Rosemary? The father, every day, the father looked for his son. His son didn't want him to go after him. He said, I'm not going to go after him. And there's some people you can't go after until God changes their hearts. The father saw him coming, and he ran. He had compassion. He fell on his neck, and he kissed him. I can imagine that boy right there was probably saying, okay, uh, wait, wait, Dad, I, I got a speech. I got a speech. Hold on. But I wrote it down, what I want to say to you. Um, I'm sorry for, um, wait, wait, I got to tell you, I'm sorry for, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 21. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but I love verse 22. And the Bible says, look what it says, but the father, what's that word? But the father said to his servants, bring out what? The best robe. That's Jesus. Come on, somebody. He doesn't give us somebody else's robe. He gives us the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. What was a ring for? It was the signature, signet of the family. Each family had an emblem. When they signed a document, they would, they, would, they, would, they would let the wax fall, and they would use that signet. Boom, that's your signature. You can now sign, you can write checks again, son. You got your inheritance, but I'm giving you the power to write checks again. God puts us back. He, 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 he hugs us. He puts, the, he puts the, the power of his word and his finances in our hands again. And then he said in verse 23, and bring the what? Fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be what? Merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be what? They began to be merry. Would to God that we were happy when people came back regardless of their condition. Come on, somebody. 
Why do we have to say to people, oh, you'll, you'll be accepted here, but you got to do step one, two, three, four, and five. Let God take them through the steps. Get a robe for somebody when they come back. How long have you been gone? Don't ask that. That's not your, that's not your business. You're, you're, you need to rejoice that they're back. They, he didn't say, well, how long was it? So were you the fool that I said you were? Fathers, you know, people can say that. Did you waste all your money? Huh? Father didn't say that. He said, I heard what you said, but get the best robe. Put the signet ring on his hand. Let's get some dinner in here. Let's get excited about it. In that story, I didn't bring him up today, but there's that other son standing in the shadow. Why are you rejoicing over him? He said, you, are, you never left. For those of us who never left, There needs to be evidence in your life that you're not just in the house. You're in the Father. He was in the house, but he wasn't in the Father. That's why he treated his brother with such slight. Don't be guilty of being in God's house, but not being in the Father. What a story. You see, the prodigal son, let's get the reconciliation now. The prodigal son returned because he wanted a relationship with his father. The father received him because he wanted a relationship with his son. That's reconciliation. The father could have said, I forgive you, but you need to find another place because you, you know, I'm not going to let you do that again. The father could have said that to that boy because he was a stingy, selfish, self-centered, kind of like, just, put the, just say youth and you got it all. Me, 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 me. So, okay, you want that? Here's your check. Do what, do what you want with it. The father didn't do any of that. He didn't beat him up. He said, come on back in. Get on in here. We ought to rejoice when somebody comes back. Amen. But after the son wasted his life on stuff, he longed for what money could not buy, a relationship with his father. So now let's go to a passage in Scripture, Joe, that we often read, but we leave what's after it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Reconciliation requires the agreement on both parts. I want a relationship with you, and you want a relationship with me. That's reconciliation. That's not just forgiveness. The Father forgives, but reconciliation. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 to 19. Look at this. This applies to that son and to anyone that comes into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Listen to what he says. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is where? In Christ, he is a what? New creation. Well, how did that happen? All things have what? Passed away. Oh, that we would allow the same thing to happen. Behold, all things have become what? New. Oh, how many things? Okay, now before we go to the next part of the passage, he says, whatever you did is behind, but what I'm about to do for you is going to be brand new. I'm not going to put you back in your old rancid room with your old stinking clothes and all the way you used to live. I'm going to put you in a better place. And to get you ready, I'm going to give you a new robe. I'm going to give you a signet ring. You're going to be able to sign checks. You now have the evidence that you are part of this family. That's how they did it back then. The evidence of the signet ring wasn't 
for the purpose of wearing jewelry, that's how they signed checks, just like the amulet that, ne- that uh, the king was going to give to Daniel. He said, if you tell me what that vision is all about and what this vision means, I'll put a necklace around your neck. Daniel said, you could keep the necklace. <laughs> but it was not about jewelry in this particular context. But look now at verse 18. This is where it begins to open up. And I want you to notice, if you can, you might highlight or underline how many times the word reconcile is mentioned. Now remember, all things have become new. Now watch this. Now all things are of who? All things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, Okay, I'm going to pause there because i got to break this down. I told you that reconciliation has to be an agreement between two people, right? The father and the son agreed that we got to get them back. Is that it? The father and the son agreed that they wanted us back. I'm not going to ask for any more because you're probably stunned that they want you back. Brethren, why do we look forward to the coming of Jesus? Because the Father and the Son agreed that they want me to be in the kingdom with him. That they want me to live down the street from Jerusalem Avenue. New Jerusalem Avenue. That I'll be able to see the capital of the universe. Because the Father and the Son agreed that they wanted us back. You gotta let that, you gotta chew that, you gotta let that move around like a mint in your mouth. Let it expand your spiritual taste buds because you gotta get that. Reconciliation requires two, but now notice what happened. Since they did that, look what this passage continues to say. And has given us, has given who? Has given who? Say me, has given me the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, now here it is. What the Father and the Son agreed to do for us, we must now agree with Jesus to do for somebody else. Are you getting that? In other words, if the Father can do that to sinners like us, who are we to not do that to sinners like us? He said, this is your ministry. This is your ministry. It's not your ministry just to pass out tracks. It's your ministry to reflect what's in those tracks. It's not your ministry just to keep the Sabbath. It's your ministry to be at peace with your brothers and sisters when the Sabbath comes. It's not your ministry just to be a vegan or a vegetarian. I want your heart to be clean, your life to be clean. I've committed to you the ministry of reconciliation. Watch this, verse 19. That is, this is what God has given to us, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Let's not run past that. Meaning, that's the only way this sinful world could ever be in harmony with the kingdom of heaven because Jesus had to come. The Father and the Son agreed, we got to get him back. This planet stolen by Satan. This planet where he seduced humanity to fall into the darkest pit, where Adam willingly opened the door. 
God said, I know Adam did it, but I still want him back. Who do you know could love you like that? You kicked them in the back. He said, it hurt, but I still want you back. But watch what else it says. Not imputing their trespasses to them. I want to tell you, if he imputed my trespasses to me, I wouldn't be here. If I woke up in the morning and the Lord said, I have not forgotten what you did. He would be just like Satan, the accuser of our brethren. But it doesn't stop there. He does not impute our trespasses to us and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What the Father did with Jesus in agreement, what Jesus and you have done to your life in agreement, you find somebody to agree with to do the same for you together. Families, can you imagine what would happen if family members, the number one aim is that we live as family, we work through our differences, we close our eyes in unity. Reminds me of the gentleman that called me, Joel. I think I may have told you the story, but it fits right here. I won't give his last name because he may be watching. Left the church at, after graduating from college. Something went wrong. He wanted to be a Bible teacher, but something went awry and he left the, walked away from the Lord, walked away from the Adventist church. And it was not until 73 years old. Every time the Lord reached out to him and says, do you want to be reconciled to me? He said, no, I'm not having it. No. He said, I was a mean person of vindictive individuals. I didn't like family members. And I would say to them, hey, you know what? We don't like each other. So let's just do this. Let's just get together at funerals. Is that all right? I'll see you at the funeral. And after that, no relationship. Before that, no relationship. But he said one Sabbath, as he was perusing, he and his wife were perusing through, through the Internet, they came upon our church and kept watching it from Sabbath to Sabbath, and God began to transform and change that man and his wife. And one day he heard a sermon from a well-known uh, Spanish evangelist. And he said, that man made the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ so real. He said, I was in my living room. There was no fanfare. There was no music. There was no atmosphere. But he grabbed my heart to help me understand what Jesus had done for me. And he said, you know, I could not resist. And he said to me, as Pastor Turner was listening, I was visiting with Pastor Turner. I had her on speaker. Pastor Turner's looking at I, me, and I'm looking at him. And he said, Pastor John, this man is saying, if I can only tell you what it feels like to be forgiven, if I could only let you know what it feels like to be free and accepted by the Father, I cannot explain it. I cannot explain it. But I want to tell you, it has so impacted my life that I'm going back in my line and calling people that I have offended. 
writing letters to people that I have shut down. I'm going through my family line, making everything right with people that I have not spoken to in years. And he wrote his brother, and his brother wrote him back. He calls, his brother calls him my new brother. He said, I accept your apology, but I've been praying for you for 40 years. And he said, now my brother and I, we call each other new brothers. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God's not looking for members. He's looking for new creations. He's not looking for people that could sing. He's looking for people that could sing the song of redemption and live it out in their lives. There was one dark spot in the story. He wrote a letter to his sister. She didn't respond. They had cut each other off. He wrote again. She didn't respond. Checked the email. It was the correct email. Then he said, I'm going to text her. I'm going to text her instead. He texted her, no response. He texted her again, no response. And he thought, wow, did I offend her that bad? But he got a call from his brother and said, did you hear what happened? Our sister just been taken to the hospital. She's been overcome by COVID-19. That's why she couldn't respond to you. It was ravaging her, living by herself. A couple of days later, he got a phone call from his brother. He said, did you hear what happened? Our sister just passed away. She succumbed to COVID-19. He said, I want to tell you how heavy my heart was. To not hear from my sister, I forgive you. Now let's reconcile this. He said, Pastor, that's a burden that I was carrying until my brother said to me, God knows that you made things right. You made an attempt to make it right. And he said, don't worry about it. Don't carry the burden. You'll see your sister in the resurrection. You see, God has committed to us the work of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. You see, once again, I'll say it again. I'm going to read something. Reconciliation is far deeper than forgiveness. You can forgive people, but don't even talk to them. But reconciliation says, let's talk again. Let's fix our family. Let's fix our church. Let's fix our relationship at work so I don't come to work and avoid you and you come to work and avoid me. Let's get this thing right. How beautiful it would be if Christians had the same passion at the highest level. You see, I was reading about reconciliation. I, I decided to go ahead and dive into the biblical definition of reconciliation. And here's what I discovered. Reconciliation with God is necessary after a person has lost the divine friendship through grievous sin. It requires repentance on the part of the sinner, that's one side, and forgiveness on the part of God together. The willingness to be reconciled with another person is a, I want you to get this, is a necessary condition for you to obtain God's mercy. I don't know if you caught that. The willingness to be reconciled with another person is a necessary condition for obtaining God's mercy. Can I say that like we would say it in the short? You don't want to reconcile with me? God ain't going to reconcile with you. You want to be one with me? God will be one with you. You want mercy? You give it to me, and God will give it to you. To he who shows mercy, mercy will be shown. 
That's what the Bible says. But the problem with us is the everlasting gospel. The second thing, the everlasting gospel does not just sever us from our terrible past. It reconciles us and prepares us for a blessed future. It says, I know how bad your past was, but let me show you how good your future is going to be. So we don't look back all the time. We look forward because Jesus is pulling us farther and farther away from where we were to where he wants us to be. But there's a problem, and we suffer from that problem. Those of us who keep the Sabbath and always preach the Ten Commandments, we suffer from this problem. You know what it is? It is easier to talk about what sin is, Donna, than what sin does. It's easier to talk about what sin is than what sin does. Let's look at our favorite passage. 1 John 3, verse 4, this is what sin is. This is unequivocal. This is indisputable. The Bible says, whoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the what? Transgression of the law. That's a, that's a favorite Seventh-day Adventist passage. You know, we throw it to the people that keep Sunday. Yeah, yeah, they got the wrong day. <laughs> they don't go to church on the right day. Bad people. But let's look at what sin does. Not just what sin is. Are you ready for it? Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he will not what? He will not. You see, we know what sin is. But what has sin done? It separates. It divides us. It keeps us apart. That's why, brethren, I need to add this in here. This is not in my sermon notes. That's why in this divisive society that we live today, we cannot allow the world and all of its cancerous politics to divide us. That's the devil's aim. He wants to divide us. We have to, we have to answer the prayer of Jesus. So to understand reconciliation even further, let's go to John chapter 17. Let's look at the prayer of Jesus. Look at the prayer of Jesus. Yeah, we know what sin is, but what does sin do? It separates, it breaks relationships down. But look at the prayer of Jesus. And I want you to see something in this that's going to jump out at you. And I'm not going to be long today because I'm almost done. No amens necessary. Void where prohibited by law. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> John 17, verse 20 to 23, look at it, look at it, look at it, the prayer of Jesus. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said, I do not pray for these alone. I do not pray for these alone. But what, is, what does he say? But also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. When you speak, Will somebody believe in Jesus? Look at verse 21. That they all may be together, one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you did what? That you sent me. Your oneness is evidence that the Father sent the Son, but it doesn't end there. And he said... The glory, look at it here, the glory which you gave me, I have done what? 
given them. Did you get it? Fear God and give glory to him. You can't give glory without his glory. That they may be one just as we are one. Here it is, verse 23. What is it? I and them and you and me, that they may be made what? Perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's powerful. That is, that's huge. So let me, let me give you two very quick things. You see, reconciliation, did you hear what I said? What word did I just say? Reconciliation demonstrates something that the world does not know. The world doesn't know it. Here's the facts. God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. But here's the question. Is Jesus in you? Because if he is, because if he is, you cannot resist reconciliation because that's what he does. You see, God was in that's a, God was in Jesus, that's a fact. But is Jesus in us? That's a question. Because the question of reconciliation cannot be answered until we clear up a major misconception. Are you ready for the misconception? The Lord showed me last night. Not all members are Christians, and not all Christians are disciples. Now, why would I say that? Not all members are Christians. Whoo! I'm a member. Are you a Christian? Depends on what you mean. I met Christians who say, I'm a Christian, but I, I ain't keeping the commandments. Well, how could you be a Christian and not want to keep the commandments? You see, there are, two, there are three major requirements for Christians. So let me get to it right now. Let's look at these major requirements. There are three major requirements for being a disciple. Because I said, not all members are Christians and not all Christians are disciples. When you become a disciple, you are no longer on your own terms. Did you get that? God's got terms. You just agree to those terms and live it out in your life. That's why he took the time he did to train the disciples. He said, I'm not letting you go till you're on my terms. And to seal this, you got to go on the day of Pentecost, get on your knees and pray. And when you are finally in one accord, when you are finally united, only after you are reconciled to each other can you go forth and preach reconciliation to the world. Get in that upper room and pray. James and John, y'all need to get that right. Peter, stop talking and start listening. Thomas, what are you doubting? Doubt your doubts and not your God. All those people that want to be where you are not, let's lay all that aside. Let's put Jesus Christ as the center focal point. Disciples have three responsibilities. Let's look at the first one. Here it is on the screen. Isaiah 8.16. Isaiah 8.16. And by the way, this is Old Testament. The Lord says in Isaiah 8.16, what's the first requirement? Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. In John 14, 15, if you love me together, keep my commandments. A disciple of Christ has no issue with the law of God. Amen. And they keep it because they love him. Not because they have to. They keep it because he has reconciled them to him. 
And it is Christ who's living out by his power what can only be done with his power. Disciples don't have an issue with the law of God. The most amazing thing is to say I'm a disciple of Christ, but I don't want to keep the law of God. So I'm going to ask a question, and then we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. How, yes, Bob, how can we expect people to become like Jesus? These are some tough questions. If we who profess to know him are not like him, how are you going to live a life differently in Walmart and invite people to your church to become like you and you're not like Jesus? Acts chapter 4, verse 16. Peter and John, watch this, were causing havoc among the Jews because the Jews that claimed to know God had no connection with Jesus. Did you get that? They claimed to know God, but they had no connection with Jesus. But they're creating havoc. The church is being turned upside down. The Jews cannot stop Peter and John. They are causing havoc because they're preaching Jesus and demonstrating him everywhere. Look at this. So Acts chapter 4, verse 16, I'm going to start with the word, what shall we do? Look at this. They brought them, they arrested them, and they asked the question, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them, it is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And what are the last five words? And we cannot deny it. Let me say something. If a miracle has been done through your life and people see it and they say, wait a minute, something happened in that person's life and although I don't like them, I can't deny what I see. Amen, somebody. I cannot deny what I see. The Jews could not, they didn't like them at all. The Romans didn't like them at all, but they said, but we cannot deny what we, cannot deny what we have seen. <laughs> but now let's go to the next verse. The Jews and Romans could not deny what they saw in Peter and John. The Jews saw in the disciples, watch this, what they did not see in themselves. I've never seen that before. Look at verse 13. What did, the, what did they not see? Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, what did it say next? They marveled, and what did they see? And they realized, come on somebody, that they had been with Jesus. And what happened? They couldn't deny it. We can't deny it. They've been with Jesus. You think all this stuff is happening because they're great? No. They've been with Jesus. We can't deny. Look at what's happening. Lives are being brought back together. Relationships are being mended. We cannot deny it. If the church would ever be like that, the world will say, the church has something that we don't have and we cannot deny it. I want it. Christ object lessons. Christ object lessons. Page 67, paragraph 1. Put a point there between the two. I left that point. Christ Object Lessons, page 67, paragraph 1. Look at this. Christ is seeking, 
Say that again. Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men. And he does this through those who do what? Believe in him. The object of the Christian life is what? Fruit bearing, not judging, not condemning. The object of the Christian life is fruit bearing. The reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. The object of the Christian life is fruit bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. Here it is. Tracy, if it's happening in you, it'll happen through you. If the Lord is changing your life and somebody gets in touch with you, your, their lives are going to be changed. If the Lord is producing fruit in your life and somebody comes in contact with you, those fruits are going to be produced in their lives. But the, the first three words get caught my attention. Christ is seeking. Christ is what? Seeking. Now, I gave you the first two things that Jesus wants to do. The one is he wants to show us that we are in obligation to keep his law. He also wants to let us know that by this all men will know that we are his disciples by his love, by his, our love for one another. By our love for one another, people will know that we are his disciples, John 13, 35. But I left the third one right after this quotation. The third one is very vitally important for us in the reconciliation business. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, look at what he said. Look what he said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. How many nations? Okay, now, wait a minute. How could we make disciples of somebody unless we are a disciple ourselves? Disciples live in a non-conditional life. The Lord outlines all the conditions. You honor my law. You love one another, and you now go make disciples of everybody else. Not disciples by word and deed alone, but by the life you live. And when you live that kind of life, people are going to see this reproduction in you, and they're not going to be able to deny it. They're not going to be able to do what? Deny it. So now let's go back to the original passage as I close. Let's go back to the original passage. The third thing the everlasting gospel does, the everlasting gospel cannot reveal Jesus in us until we agree with Jesus to remove sin from us. Now, this is powerful. So the question is, Leon, how do we do that? How does it happen? 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. Because I gave you all the parameters, what reconciliation is and what it requires. It requires more than forgiveness, but the un uniting of one to the other, the bringing back, the mending of broken relationships, but how do we do that? How do we do that? 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not, what? Sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, what on earth, Ron, is propitiation? It's that word that we could hardly pronounce, let alone know what it is. 
Propitiation, say that, is a big word that simply means satisfaction. Now let me break it down. Satisfied. You see, let's watch this. Because God is holy, a holy God, his anger and justice burns against sin. And because he's holy and his anger burns against sin, he has sworn that sin will be punished. Am I right so far? Sin will be punished. But let's get this. There must be a satisfactory payment for sin. So watch this. But if God punishes man for his sin, man will die and go to hell. I want you to grab that. If God punishes man for man's sin, we will just die and end up in hell. On the other hand, if God does not punish man for his sin, his justice is not satisfied. So we have a problem. God is holy, is he not? God is angry with sin, is he not? And his anger burns hot against it. But we are sinners. So how is God going to satisfy his justice and preserve us from hell? Are you ready for the crux of the entire message? How's he going to do that? The solution? God said, I got it. I got it. God and his son had a, had a conversation. We got to get him back. I hate sin, but I love them. But they're sinners. How am I going to justify them and still deal with sin? Because sin requires a payment. Somebody's got to die. The wages of sin is what? Death. So the father and the son said, hey, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's propitiate. Why don't you go and satisfy the debt for sin so they don't have to? Why don't you go and die so they don't have to? Why don't you go and become the substitute so that I won't have to punish man for his sins. Why don't you go and walk the road of agony and shed your blood so that they don't have to walk the road of agony and shed their blood? Why don't you go? So now in this context, verse 2 means he himself, Jesus himself, is not just our not just our satisfaction, but he is our substitute. He stepped where we should have been standing. He went to our cross. He took our punishment. He took our scourging. He bore our sins. Somewhere along the way, can I get an amen? He took what only belongs to us. So God said, you become the substitute. You take man's sin upon you, and in the cross, and in the agony, and in the shedding of blood, you do everything that they should rightfully do. 
And we find out in the propitiation, the substitute, Jesus satisfied every claim that sin had against you and I. And what else did he do? He became a righteous judge and he became a righteous substitute for us. He stood where we should have stood. He died where we should have died. And get this, this is even more powerful. God's wrath burned on the cross when his only son died as man's propitiation for sin. Now let me say that again. God's wrath burned out on the cross when his only son became our propitiation, our substitute. What did I mean by burned out? Did you hear me say burned out? What did I mean by that? From the cross on, I don't know, hold on, Bob. Are you ready? From the cross on, because of Jesus taking on himself what he did for us, God's wrath is not burning against you. It's burning against sin. I want you to get that. Because if it's burning against us, we're on our way to hell. Am I right? But God's wrath today, I can stand here today and say, if anyone sins, I have an advocate with the Father because his wrath is not burning against me. It's burning against sin. Come on, somebody. You see what happens here. When Jesus satisfied the claims of sin, the wrath of God burned out on the cross. But here's the sad part. For those that have not accepted the substitute of Jesus, that have not accepted the satisfaction of his life, the wrath of God will burn against them. So I want you to get this. Jesus is not coming back to destroy folk. He's coming back to destroy sin and the devil and the devil's angels. Brethren, why would we want to be in a fire that God never even kindled for us? Propitiation? Last text. Propitiation? Jesus, and this is where it's going to hit, this is where it's going to hit the highest point. Jesus is not just the one who satisfied the requirements of sin. Jesus is not just our substitute that went to the cross. Jesus is our replacement. Wait a minute. Nancy, why do we need a replacement? Because you know why? We're dead. In trespass and sin, we died to that old life. And Paul says it this way. Here it is. Let's cap it right here. We who claim to be dead to that old life must understand that from the moment that we declare to be dead in Christ, this must be our journey. Galatians 2.20. If you want to say it with me, praise the Lord. The more the merrier. I have, together, I have been crucified. Have you? Have you? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Is it? If Christ has taken your place, you are not alive. He's the one living, but Christ lives in me. Does he? In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who did what, friends? 
loved me and gave himself for me. What does propitiation mean? Let's break it down. Jesus came down so that one day we can go up. Come on, somebody. He walked our road that so one day we can walk his road. He was arrested so that we can be set free. He was declared guilty so that we can be declared innocent. He was condemned so that we can be pardoned. He was treated as a criminal that we might be treated as royalty. He was stripped so that we can be clothed. He wore our thorns so that one day we can wear his crown. He suffered the shame of death so that we can share the glory of life. Propitiation. You see, the road was ours. The arrest should have been us. We were guilty. We were condemned. We were the criminal. We should have been stripped. We should have worn that crown of thorns. We should have suffered the shame of our own sin. But the Lord said, no, no, Father, I'll take it for them. And I want to give them something else. That's what the Lord is waiting for. Now, look at this last quotation. The first quotation was, Christ is seeking. But look at this one. The first three words, Last Day Events, page 39. What are the first three words? Christ is waiting. Is he waiting on you? Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Amen, somebody. The everlasting gospel. What is the everlasting gospel? The everlasting gospel, Gary, is divinity displayed through humanity. When Jesus is seen through us, the world will be forced to say, we cannot deny it. You see, my brother and sister, oh yeah, I mean, this whole week, <laughs> I was talking about Christian atheists. Remember, Bob? Last Wednesday, Last Saturday night, last Wednesday, if you were on the Zoom feed, I was talking about Christian atheists, and the devil punched me in my gut. He said, I'm going to make sure that you're a Christian atheist this week. And when I lost my temper yesterday, he said, so are you a Christian atheist? Ah. Yeah. And I had to grovel, had to put my pride in the dust, and pick up that phone to that misguided young man and say, forgive me. Forgive me for the way I spoke to you. He said, it's forgiven. I said, I want the best for you. And you know what he said? I will not disappoint you. You see, when we forgive and seek reconciliation, God wants the best for us. But do you want the best for your brothers and sisters? And when the Lord does that, the everlasting gospel, what is the everlasting gospel? The everlasting gospel is divinity displayed through humanity. And when Jesus is seen in us and reconciliation occurs and we are together as one, the world will be forced to say, we cannot deny it. You want Jesus to come? Stop keeping Jesus waiting. He wants to reproduce his character in us. And when it happens, he will come. You want Jesus to come? Stop participating with him so his character can be reproduced in us. You want Jesus to come into your life? 
We're praying for those of you that are watching or listening. And we're going to stand together in commitment of our lives to Christ. We want Christ to come in us. The everlasting gospel is more than the mark of the beast, the hour of his judgment, the fall of Babylon. It is the reproduction of the character of Jesus in our lives and in our hearts. It is a reconciliation, one brother with a brother, one sister with the sister, family members back together, churches united. When this is occurring, when this occurs, Jesus is waiting to do this, to see it in his church. And when it happens, he will return to claim them as his own. I want the Lord to say, hey, that's my son, right? That's my daughter. Those are my children. Stop having him wait. Put self aside that we can make room. That's why when John says in Revelation 19, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bridegroom is no longer waiting because She's ready. Loving Father in heaven, I had to ask myself this week, am I ready? And you told me that, no, you're not ready. You got to conquer your attitude. You got to conquer your anger. You got to understand that somebody doesn't agree with you, that you should not unleash an ungodly spirit. You must still reflect my character. Lord Jesus, today, you've called us to be like Peter and John, to live that undeniable walk. They've been with Jesus. Father, we're praying that that will be said of us. He has been with, she has been with, they have been with Jesus. Take the everlasting gospel off the pages, Lord, and begin to live it out in our lives and in our hearts Help us to recognize that there's a mirror in front of us telling us that we are not worthy. But there's a Jesus in front of us telling us that he wants us to be reconciled to him. And when that reconciliation happens between us and the Father, may we go forth and make disciples of all nations through this great ministry of reconciliation. And Father, when it is all done, when the work is completed and Christ returns, I pray that he can recognize me, us, all of us, as children that he wants to give a new mission to now, to go and tell all the unfallen worlds what it was like to be reconciled to God, what it was like to be saved, what it was like to be forgiven, brought back into harmony with the Father. May this be our experience but may all of the glory go just to you. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen.